morning everyone and welcome to the Pittsburgh Current Podcast from beautiful downtown Beachview Business District. I'm Charlie Deach, Pittsburgh Current Editor and uh, we've got a good show today. We have newly announced 36th District State Rep Candidate Jessica Benham is here and uh, I also want to let you know though that our fall guide is still on the streets. You can check, pick that up. Uh, we have more than 400 events between now and mid-December for you to take in. I mean, you don't have to do all 400 if you don't want to, but they're there in case you want them. Um, a new issue of the Pittsburgh Current comes out this week, and we will have coverage of the Real Q, Pittsburgh Real Q Film Festival, uh, among many other things. So check that out. Um, and also, if you're free on Saturday, I will be appearing... On the Dangerously Live comedy talk show with John McIntyre, and I will be a guest along with the great Gab Bonesso and the great Bethany Hallam. Um, I I would come out and be prepared for, I'm sure, uh, people to say the first thing that come to their mind. I think it'll be a good time. So it's at the Brillo Box, 6 p.m., $20 entry, um, Dangerously Live with John McIntyre. It's the 10th anniversary show, so check it out. But today we're going to talk politics, Um, and we will be talking politics on Saturday, but... This is of the local variety, and um, I have to say I was very happy uh, slash excited when uh, I got a press release this week um, uh, f- from uh, Jessica Benham's camp Jessica Benham's campaign that she's going to be launching a um, a, a challenge against uh, twenty five year incumbent Harry Reedshaw in the thirty sixth district, and. Um, uh, we'll, well, we'll we'll get into all of that. I'm sure. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, just to we'll kind of set the stage a little bit. Um, the district is uh, South Hills uh, area of Pittsburgh. Um, Harry Reedshaw uh, is a Democrat. Uh, yeah. Democrat, and that's my own opinion. That's uh, certainly that doesn't reflect the opinion of anyone else. Uh, it does, but no, you know, I don't want to speak for them uh, actually. But um, you know, he um, he very much uh, is conservative when it comes to things like um, uh, gun gun control um, and other sorts of issues, but, um, what you, I think we have in, uh, Jessica and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you will, but is a progressive challenger to Harry. Jessica, what made you decide to take on this challenge at this time? Absolutely. So I am running because it is time that district 36 was represented by someone who upholds progressive democratic values. Right. Um, and definitely, um, even if, Folks, even if folks want to say that Harry's liberal, I don't think they could say that Harry is progressive, uh, to say the least. Um, what kind of uh, first? Let's talk a little bit about about yourself. Um, uh, you you founded co-founded a nonprofit um, to help uh, uh, folks uh, with autism, um, and you could tell us a little bit about that, and tell us a little bit about how you got into that, and how that sort of rolled into a political interest. So when I moved back home to Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. I, I did that thing that a lot of Pittsburghers sure. do. I left to go to college and yeah. then boomeranged right back. So mm-hmm. my mom is very happy that I'm back in Pittsburgh. <laughs> I'm sure. 
But when I came back, I was looking for community with other people who were like me, mm -hmm. particularly other autistic people. Right. And I found that there were some groups for autistic people, but they were mainly composed of, of white men. Right. And white straight men. And so looking for community that was reflective of my entire identity, mm -hmm. I found the local chapter of the Pittsburgh Center for Autistic Advocacy, which at the time was run by my good friend, Corey Frazier. And after talking, you know, we realized that we needed more than just a support group. We needed more than just one monthly meeting. So we put our heads together and with a group of other folks who have become our steering committee, we created the Pittsburgh Center for Autistic Advocacy. And it is the only organization in the greater Pittsburgh area that does disability rights work that is run by autistic people for autistic people and more specifically by autistic LGBT people. Wow. And so that's uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, not only are you, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I don't, I, I think when you talk about a community, you know, there is certainly, I would say uh, the uh, autistic folks are a community within the city. Is that, is, I mean, is that fair? Is that the proper way to say that? I want to make sure that, and then, but also you are a member of the LGBTQ community. And so I would think that there would not be a whole lot of, a whole lot of places or spaces for you that sort of encompasses at least most of who you are. And so, um, was it, did you find much in the way of pushback to sort of break into that kind of, white male dominated kind of area. And then, and then again, how do you then find other folks who are also part of the LGBTQ community? So I think what we've done is built spaces that welcome LGBTQ mm -hmm. autistic people. And certainly we also work with and serve autistic people who are not LGBTQ. I don't want to make us sound exclusive sure. that way, but we've been really intentional about building spaces where folks who aren't straight or folks who aren't cis do feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so those spaces are, you know, our social meetup or happy hours that we'll hold or, you know, at pride, we do a sensory tent where we try to eliminate oh, yeah. some of the noise. We try to, we bring stim toys. We right. set up a really cozy space so that autistic folks who belong at Pride, right? Yeah. Autistic LGBTQ Absolutely. folks belong at Pride. Yeah. That they can feel welcome and feel that they have a place where they can go so that Pride is accessible to them. And I would think it's important for there to be a group, because I mean, I think we've heard it, not just with Pride, but with other with other not just LGBTQ groups, but if there's a subset uh, of another community or a smaller community in a larger community, those folks are oftentimes, um, those folks are oftentimes overlooked and, and not necessarily, no one, nobody's necessarily looking to find them and bring them in. So I would think it takes an organization or at least a really strong core group of folks to sort of, um, to, I guess, up the image or bring to the forefront that, that, that these folks are here and want to be part of the greater community at large. Right. I think we have to talk about the fact that autism discourse has been dominated for a really long time by white people, by cis people, by yeah. straight people. And that's important. Yeah. And so when I'm talking about these things, I also want to acknowledge that I occupy a privileged position. Mm -hmm. I'm a white person. And as a bisexual person who is married to a man, I have the privilege of looking like I'm straight. Right. So I'm not exposed to the same dangers that folks who are not straight passing mm -hmm. are. And 
that comes with its own limitations. Sure. Sometimes people will tell me things like, oh, you're not gay enough. I was going to bring that up. That's one of the things I was going to bring up. Is there are, even within even within groups, there are stigmas and there are barriers even within the group. So how do you make it? How do you make it so? How do you make it even more inclusive? Like what? What? what, is, what not maybe step by step, but what is sort of the idea behind, or how is the what's the what's the what's the uh, the infrastructure? I guess to sort of make sure that people aren't just because it almost seems like it doesn't matter what it is at some point. Even in even in a smaller group, there still tends to be divisions or pushing someone to the side for this, that, the other reason. Um, so how do you how did you make sure that that everyone was kind of accounted for and everyone was given a, a voice in a space? So one of my biggest values and a value that we've worked to develop really hard at the Pittsburgh Center is cross movement solidarity, which is to say. Not only should we exist in solidarity with other movements, but we should acknowledge the ways in which all of us become part of different movements. Yeah. Right? I'm a disabled person. I'm also a union organizer. I'm a disabled person. But I'm also bisexual. Yeah. And to exist, to be able to exist in all of those movement spaces as my whole self is incredibly important. Yeah. And so cross-movement solidarity as a value is something I hold too strongly, which is to say that no matter what movement space I'm in, yeah. I want to acknowledge the full humanity and the full personhood of anybody that I'm interacting yeah. with. If this is, if this is, um, if this is too personal, just tell me, but how did you navigate that yourself? Personal? I mean, obviously these things sort of, you know, as we discover who we are and as we discover different things, I mean, you obviously, um, you were diagnosed with at some point with, with autism. You at some point realized, um, you're, that you were bisexual, your sexuality, um, disabilities. And so, so how, so how did you like this? How did, how did that experience, how, what was that experience for you? Yeah. So it's interesting, right? People like me don't run for office. Right. There's never been somebody like me right. who's run for office successfully. And, you know, growing up, you know, when you don't see people who look like you or mm -hmm. think like you or move like you in elected positions, how could that ever be something right. that you see yourself doing, right? I mean, I, I look back and I think about second grade Jessica. Yeah. who was an awkward, gangly child mm -hmm. who desperately wanted to be a bug scientist <laughs> right. at the same time that a lot of my peers were thinking about being president. Right. Because I'm looking around, nobody like me had ever, had ever done something like yeah. that. I failed out of second grade. If my second grade teacher could see me today, yeah. she wouldn't believe this. You know, I remember her telling my parents yeah. in front of me that I was a bad child wow, and that I would come to nothing. And in you know, second when, grade, in second grade. Wow. Yeah. And so that's something I will tell, you know, when I do teacher trainings about autism mm -hmm. or when I talk to parents, I'll say, you know, it doesn't matter how young your child is. It doesn't matter what your child's disability is. They are listening yeah. and you should assume that they understand you. At, at what age were you aware of, um, that, that you, that you had autism and at what point, I mean, did you ever, as you said, you, you maybe felt a little awkward or different, but it was, so was that, was that always kind of the case for you? And was that, I mean, I, let me tell you, I felt awkward and different a lot in school too. So was it, was it the, was it just sort of the, the, the growing up or was it, 
part of of the autism diagnosis or, or what was uh, at play there? Yeah. So like many autistic women, I wasn't diagnosed until college. Wow. That's pretty typical. Because, is really? How, why is that? Well, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, yeah. autism was a thing that little white boys had. Right. And so when that's the stereotype, when Sheldon Cooper is the stereotype, right. somebody like me doesn't get that diagnosis. Yeah. And that means that somebody like me doesn't get those supports and services sure. in school because you need the diagnosis for that. And so, yeah, it was that I felt different. I have felt different for as long as I can remember. Yeah. But it was also that I didn't, I didn't understand why I was getting in trouble. I didn't understand okay. why I wasn't doing well. I didn't understand why you know other kids were able to form relationships and friendships in yeah. certain ways, and and I wasn't. So yeah, I mean, I'll say I felt awkward and yeah. I felt out of place. But it was bigger than that because right. it was also systemic. You know, it wasn't just here's yeah. this nerd. Right. It was here are all of these systemic barriers for somebody who's like me. So were there were were there were there attempts to or was it just in in someone's mind or in someone's uh, training or whatever that they just decided it was um, it was um, it was uh, disciplinary issues. Is that kind of what you were sort of tagged with rather than trying to look at, is there something going on that is causing this behavior? Is that what happened? So my mom tells me that, you know, people suggested that she get me evaluated, Mm. but she didn't really want to label me is what she says. And, you know, I get that. Yeah. But for me, the label has been powerful. Yeah. It's helped me understand who I am. Mm -hmm. It's helped me find other people like me and develop and build community and I'm so I'm proud to be autistic yeah. because it's been a journey for me. And, you know, to parents who are thinking about, you know, should their kid get diagnosed? Should they seek that for their child? And if their kid does get diagnosed, should they tell their child? Absolutely. Right. What would be the – you obviously, you work in this you work in this field. There are parents who would make the decision not to tell their child? Is that – and why is that? Is that – is that a is that a thing that they're trying to protect from a stigma, even though it might not be the best thing for the child in terms of coming to grips with what's going on with their with themselves? I think there's some worry that the kid will feel othered mm-hmm. or the kid will feel the burden of that stigma. But I always say, you know, we get labeled in all kinds of ways. Sure. Right? Bad kid. Yeah. Weird kid. Awkward kid. You know, it's better to have a label that you can claim, yeah. that you can find connection with mm-hmm. other people through, than a label that doesn't hold any of those same powers. Wow. And so when you, uh, so you went to college, I, it sounded like, you know, obviously there was, there were issues in your academic career in the, in the early stages. So, but you decided to go to college. Was that a, um, was that sort of, uh, had you, so I guess explain to me how that whole how that whole transition went into college and then your diagnosis, how that'll come about. Sure. So when I failed second grade, yeah. my mother pulled me out and homeschooled me. Mm. And she will say that like that first year, she basically spent letting me heal, letting me figure out who I was again and how to not live with that burden of feeling like a bad child. Right. And so I was homeschooled all the way up through my junior year of high school. And mm-hmm. then I took some classes at Duquesne University and then eventually eventually transferred. I think I found a lot of refuge in, in school. Yeah. 
um, academics was something I was good at. And so for me, going to college was a way to, I guess, start over a little bit yeah. and you know, figure out who I was as an adult. And what would, what, uh, what took you to Minnesota? I know you went there for your undergrad, right? It was, I did. I, I worked a little bit in North Wisconsin, so I'm familiar with the air. I'm familiar with the levels of snow that fall in those areas. <laughs> so, uh, you at Minnesota state, correct? So I got my master's degree at Minnesota okay. state. Right. I went to a tiny liberal arts college called Bethel university. Oh yeah. So I ended up there because they had an awesome speech and debate team. Yeah. To which I got a scholarship. That's and amazing. So because of that scholarship and because of the speech and debate team, yeah, that's where I was able to find a lot of community at Bethel. And and how did you eventually end up uh, with your diagnosis? Was it somebody suggesting that you get evaluated or was it something that you decided on your own or, or what, what happened? Yeah. So college is stressful. Sure. Especially if you're different in the right. ways that I'm different. And so i went to therapy. I went to go see, hey, how do I figure out, how do I navigate that yeah. stress? Which I think is a very millennial thing. Yeah. Right? We all, <laughs> there's that meme going around about, you know, my therapist says, oh, right, blah, right, blah, right, blah. right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that therapist said, hey, this sounds a lot like you might be on the autism spectrum. Yeah. And I said, huh. And I did some research and yeah. I said, wow, these women are telling stories that sound a lot like mine. Right. And so I sought that diagnosis because I wanted to know. Yeah. And then did it, um, how did it, how did it change? Let me, don't presume. What did it, what did it change in terms, did it change in way, perhaps in, you know, how you learned? Or was it just how you saw yourself and maybe accepted yourself? How, what kind of things did the diagnosis bring you? And it allowed me to find community. Yeah. It allowed me to find other people who were like me. And because I found that community, I found out coping skills and strategies right. that other people had used and shared. And that gave me a lot of, I guess, ownership yeah. over both my identity, but also how I interacted with the world. Yeah. And so as you're, um, as you're in college, um, do you start to get involved? At what point did you start getting involved in politics? At what time, at what point did you start to get um, like a lot of us, how, what point did you start getting pissed off over what was going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was a political science and communication double major. Okay. So I think I was involved in politics from the beginning. Yeah. And I mean, even as a child, you know, election night would roll around and that was a night my parents let me stay up until the results were yeah. in. So I would put this big map on the wall right. and I would color in the states <laughs> awesome. as the results came in. And so I think, you know, I had a fascination with politics and with the ways in which politics empowered some people and disempowered other people yeah. and going to college and studying political science and communication gave me more tools to understand how the political world works. Yeah. Was there, um, was there, uh, was there a race or anything that you remember particularly getting energy? So I, I am very proud that my, I never say that my first vote, <laughs> I voted for Bill Clinton. I say I got to vote against George Bush and then I got to vote against Bush, a uh, Bush twice more. So those are the kind of things that sort of excited me. And it was always on that presidential level that, that first kind of peaked. And I was, I was born, um, I was born in 71. So, um, you know, I was sort of becoming, starting to become aware as it was, you know, um, Ford rolling into Carter and so forth. Uh, but you know, it was really like, 
eighties and nineties politics that really sort of, sort of got me involved. Was there something, was there either an issue or a race or something that made you just sort of energize you or got you jazzed about politics? Yeah. So I'm a December baby mm-hmm. and there are a lot of things that are great about being a December baby. There are a lot of things that are awful. You right. get birthday presents, Wrapped in Christmas paper. Right. Sometimes Christmas and your birthday celebration get combined. <laughs> right. And you happen to be a month too young to vote in the 2008 presidential election. Oh. Which, as somebody who was very attuned and interested in yeah. politics, frustrated me to no end. Right. So when President Obama's re-election rolled around, yeah. I was super jazzed <laughs> to That's be amazing. able to go and vote. And yeah. You know, the fascinating thing, right, about voting in Minnesota is they have same-day registration. Oh, right. Yeah. So I could walk up with my student ID, register, and then vote. Right. And that process meant that voting was something that more and more people were able to do. We have a lot of barriers to voting in the state of Pennsylvania. And so moving back here, changing my registration – Figuring all of that out, you know, there's just this stark contrast between the accessibility of voting in Minnesota and the lack thereof here in Pennsylvania. Um, and so let's um, so let's get let's kind of move ahead. I know that you've you've done you've done a lot of activism. Um, you've done you've worked uh, worked with labor unions, correct? Um, and I, I do want to make sure I made a little note here. I want to get back to ask you a specific question about the unions, um, but. Um, so uh, what brought you to this point where um, this is your time, did you decide? Why, why is it this time to run uh, against Mr. Representative Reshaw? Yeah. So, you know, I talk about being excited to vote for Obama's reelection. Yeah. But it was hard to get excited about local politics sure. anywhere because I didn't see candidates that got me excited. Right. You know, we give people a lot of flack for not voting, but we don't talk about why they don't show up. Yeah. And so to see candidates like Sarah and Summer, Absolutely. Lindsay Williams, yep. Bethany, Liv, you know, the list goes on, right. right? That really energized me for the possibilities of local politics, for lifting up the voices yeah. and concerns of marginalized populations. And, you know, again, like I said, growing up, I didn't see people like me in office. Right. So I, never thought, right? right? I'm an activist, <laughs> I'm a community organizer. Yeah. I'm somebody who holds politicians accountable right. when they fail my community. And, you know, I'm a judge of elections in sure. my local precinct. And so primary day 2018, I am sitting there and I'm getting texts from all of my friends who are poll watching for these exciting women who are running for right. office. Meanwhile, I'm sitting in a polling place that seems empty. Right. And that's because there was virtually – there were no races. Right. To the, no competitive races. And so I sat there and I said to myself, well, you know what? I will find someone yeah. to run. I will find somebody to do this thing. Right. So you because didn't know it was you that day. It's time. Right. I didn't know it was, it was me that day. I knew somebody needed to do it because democracy only works when you have a choice. Yeah. And – you know, the incumbent has only had a challenger once. Yeah. And he's been in office since I was four. Wow. So, you know, when we think about the fact that there are people who can who are eligible to vote today who were not alive when he was elected to office and he's only had a challenger once. Right. 
you know, that's not really democracy if you don't have a choice. Right. And so, you know, I said, all right, I'll, I'll find somebody right. to do this thing. And, you know, more and more people, because I was going to lots of community meetings and meetings in neighborhoods that weren't my own at this mm -hmm. point as well to meet people and find out who might be, you know, and the more and more people who I met and talked to about the issues that I was passionate about and why I was looking, they said that I should. And I kind of laughed at people. I was right. like, nobody like me ever has. Yeah. How could we, right? You know, I have been openly autistic, openly bisexual, proudly so. And I'm never ashamed of those things. Yeah. But I know that there is stigma. Mm -hmm. I see the way Greta, you know, the climate activist is treated yeah. because of being autistic. And so I know it's not easy. It's never been easy. Right. But eventually I said, all right, okay, it needs to be done. Yeah. And you're right. I think I could do a decent job at this thing. <laughs> sure. And, and it's, it's, I would think that it's almost like, I mean, it's sad sometimes that, you know, we have to break down the wall a little bit at a time. And so you had that election where number one, it's, you know, male or female, nobody's going to beat these entrenched Democrats. That's, that's the first thing that comes out. And then all of a sudden, as the election draws near, people are thinking, wait a minute now, something, something's odd is happening. And so then you have, you have those upsets. Um, um, and, uh, although a lot of the vote totals don't, don't look like upsets. Um, and then you have Bethany Hallam, um, who, <laughs> who is just, just one of my, just one of my favorite people. She's just, she's energetic and she's, she's fun and funny, but she really cares about what she's doing. So then you have, you know, she's obviously uh, a woman running for office, but she's also a woman running for office who also has the stigma of being an addict, a recovering addict. And so do these, are these the things that you're seeing that you're like, um, maybe, you know, voters aren't going to look past me maybe for X, Y, or Z. Maybe this is the time when people are more willing to give someone else a chance. We've been seeing a lot of firsts yeah. in Allegheny County. And to me, that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Right. I mean, I campaigned for Bethany and live in South Pittsburgh mm -hmm. You know, Bethany kind of divided the county into yeah. quadrants, and I said, well, I live in South Pittsburgh. I'll, right. I'll organize some folks to, to do this thing. And, you know, I'm not a crier, and I bawled yeah. when Bethany and Liv won. <laughs> I just, you know, I – and that's – and it was because of, you know, these are powerful women who are breaking down walls. Yeah. They are redefining what it means to be a politician and, you know, seeing – how they've paved the way. Yeah. I said, all right, you know, we can be ourselves and do the job without compromising our values. Because that's always the fear, right? You have this activist who's been fighting for justice that they might get corrupted by the system. Right. And so to see these amazing activists who have taken that fighting spirit to, you know, the county level, to the city level, to school board and to Harrisburg – I know it's possible to be an activist and maintain that spirit and fight for you, your community right. in the state house. And I was looking, um, you can go to her website, which is Benham4PA.com. And there you have a summary of, uh, a quick summary of some of the issues, um, that, uh, well, major issues in the state and, and, and your, your sort of 
hot take on these things. Um, what are some of these issues, um, two or three or more, whatever, um, that, that, that you see where current representation is sort of failing in those areas and where can you make the difference? Yeah. So I think that with my background in healthcare policy and disability rights activism, that that's one of the issues that I have a lot of expertise Mm -hmm. and ability to make a difference. So that means looking at issues like making healthcare free at the point of access. You know, I know what it's like not to be able to afford medical care. You know, I, the health, new health insurance year just rolled around for me and I learned that my copays quadrupled. Wow. And for somebody like me who has multiple pre-existing conditions, that's serious, right? I'm a broke grad student nonprofit person. I don't make a lot of money. And so for me, you know, it's an issue that, that hits close to home and an issue that should have disabled voices at the table. But it also means talking about our crisis of addiction. Yeah. And talking about it in a way that is well-rounded. Because I think so often we talk about it in one of two ways. We talk about it as an issue of healthcare, mm-hmm. or we'll talk about it as an issue of criminalization. And neither of those is an accurate or full picture of what's going on. We have to look at root causes. We have to talk about people living in poverty, people in pain, People not having access to adequate health care. Right. People being poisoned by the air or water. You know, it's not people who are you know, failing in some kind of moral sure. way. We have to look at it holistically and talk about what we can fix on the ground level to make it so that fewer people are entrenched in opioid addiction or any other kind of addiction. Right. And obviously um, two things again that, that, that certainly affect your life directly. Um, there's been this stall uh, in the state of Pennsylvania on uh, LGBTQ um, anti-discrimination legislation. Um, and there's also been not a stall, but an outright attack on, on, on reproductive rights. So can you talk a little bit about those two issues and, and if you have sort of a, sort of an idea of, of maybe again, what you bring to the table that, 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 that Harry doesn't, um, and then a little bit of how you will look at, look at and attack these issues. Yeah. So as somebody who would be the first openly LGBTQ woman elected to the state legislature in Pennsylvania, I think I bring a particular perspective when we're talking about LGBTQ civil rights. Now, I can be fired from my job with no consequences for being bisexual, for being openly bisexual. And now, again, I want to acknowledge I've got some privilege there. Married a dude, you know? (laughs) Um, But I think it's as people say, I picked a person, not a side. Exactly. I very well could have ended up, you know. Sure. Carl's wonderful now. (laughs) And I think Bethel University, where I got my undergrad, is a religious college. Mm. And, you know, at the time that I went, I think things have changed a little bit now. But at the time that I went, you could face serious consequences for being out. Mm. And so I wasn't out. You know, I I did date women in college. Right. But you couldn't be out. And Mm -hmm. so when I think about 
you know, the consequences, the impact yeah. that that could have had on my education if I had been outed. Right. You know, those are experiences and memories that really drive me to fight for those protections. What was that time like for you? Um, and at what at what point did um, at what point did you realize that 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 you were bisexual? And, and at what and then. Well, I guess obviously at some point before you went to college, maybe. But then, so what did those? What did that? What did it do to you? I can't even imagine mentally, even physically. It's got to take a toll to pretend that you're you're not who you who you are. Yeah. So you know, I grew up in a religious family, mm-hmm. going to a church where being LGBTQ was not a thing that was allowed, and not even a thing that was really talked about. Right. This was also a church where. You know, disability, those stories were interest to sermons where somebody got healed magically, right. you know, yeah. and sitting there as a bisexual disabled kid hearing these stories, I think, you know, that makes it harder yeah. to know who you are. And I think I realized pretty early on, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell anybody. Sure. No, that's not, there were, there was nowhere in my life where I would have felt safe growing up, sharing that information. And so in many ways, going to college was a way for me to have some freedom. Right. To be more honest about who I was, even if I couldn't be out. Right. Yeah. But to be a little bit more honest. Sure. There was a surprisingly large underground LGBTQ community at Bethel. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, you find a lot of community in those places, but you also find a lot of fear yeah, and a lot of hurt. And that's where you, I mean, that's where they, they, you start getting, when you, you look at the statistics of suicide rates or attempted suicide rates among folks in the LGBTQ community, that's where that I would, again, I would never pretend to even think what that, what that could be like, but you know, just from, you know, it's when talking to someone like you, it, it, who's been through that experience, you, you really kind of see that you get the picture of, okay, that's how that can happen. Like I couldn't imagine just being, you know, being at a place and, and not being able to, to just openly say or admit who you are. It's You feel really alone. Yeah. You know, and I think it's important to acknowledge a little bit of an intersection here because it's been colloquial wisdom in the autistic community for a long time, but we finally have studies to back it up. But there are higher rates of LGBTQ people in the autistic population than in the population at large. So to think about the ways in which autistic people are further siloed, are further left to feel alone. And to combine those two things together and feel the combined impact of that weight, it's something. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think you can probably hear a lot of the pain yeah. in my voice when I yeah, when I talk no, about no question. This. And that's why I wasn't even sure if I wanted to to do the follow up because I did. I saw it and I I could hear it, and that's what I said. I can't, I can't even. It's just it's 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 an, I I can say that I grew up in a religious household and I grew up in a a church similar to what you're explaining so I know exactly um, you know um, <laughs> the kind of pressure that you're talking about and not all churches are like that no right no it took me a solid decade to yeah. go back to church and right. I will say you know I go to a hot metal faith community now. yeah. And I even struggle calling it a church. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. It is a fantastic gathering of people who 
you know, I church is about community for me. Yeah. And, you know, after missing that community in my life yeah. for, you know, ten or so years, I was looking. And to find a church where not only did they say that LGBTQ people could participate in all aspects of right. the church, they actually lived that. Yeah. And beyond that, they fully welcome disabled people, which let me tell you does not happen as often as it should in religious circles, right? Churches should be leading the way on accessibility. Yeah. And instead, some of them hide behind the fact that they're not legally bound by the ADA to not make those changes. Right. And so what I'll say about my church is <laughs> they have sign language interpretation every Sunday morning. Right. And the building is accessible in all kinds of ways. Yeah. A lot of people who seem to, who have, who grew up in the church um, and who find their way back tend to find their way back to hot metal. So that's, that's kind of cool. I still haven't found my way back. I don't, don't know if I ever will. <laughs> hey, but, that's uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are talking, we've been, I've been enjoying so much my conversation with Jessica Benham that I haven't said you were listening to the Pittsburgh Current podcast on Sorgatron Media from beautiful Beachview Business District. Um, so we talked a lot. We did talk some politics, Jessica, but I did. And I, I we also dwell, we talked a lot about your your personal experiences. So um, I, I just want to I mean, are there is there anything is there anything that, that you'd like to sort of mention or talk about that? Um, Cause I, I've got 12,000 more questions, but no more time. So do you have, um, what, what kind of, what kind of things, if you had a couple of things that you wanted to leave our listeners with about your campaign coming up, what would they be? Sure. So I think I didn't totally answer the last question right. you asked because we didn't get to talk about reproductive justice. Yes, correct. So I think we should talk about that. Let's do it. A little bit, just briefly. Yeah. So one of the most recent attacks in Pennsylvania on reproductive justice was the Down syndrome abortion bill. Yes. And I think as somebody with a developmental disability, I bring a particular, very useful perspective on that conversation. Yeah. Because one thing we don't see is the voices of disabled parents in that conversation. Right. We hear a lot of talk about you know, protecting people, but we don't hear a lot of talk about centering those voices you know, disabled parents are more likely more likely than abled parents to get their kids taken away from them right. simply by virtue of the fact that they're disabled. They're less likely to be able to marry for fear of losing their benefits, which has an impact on kids in the home or yeah. the ability to have and pay and care for kids, right? Because as we know, married couples in this country receive all kinds of benefits right. and those benefits trickle down to kids. So there's no conversation about that. There's no conversation about how people claim to want to protect the rights of people with disabilities, but won't vote to fully fund Medicaid waivers. Right. And so when we're having these conversations, ostensibly trying to protect the rights of disabled people, but not actually centering their voices or hearing from them about the things that they actually need, that's a problem. Right. Um, yeah. And that's, a, and I think that that's, that's, I think that's kind of the takeaway here today, which is you, 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 you're going to come at all of these issues that we've all talked about a thousand times. You're going to come at this with a completely different perspective. I think that's good for people to hear regardless of how things shake out. I think it's great to have the voice in the race and the voice, um, you know, and, and for you to, be able to do, you know, three or four interviews in one day, which to get the message out, which is great. And, and we need that in all facets of politics. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's, it's diverse voices is something that we've been missing a long time. And I think we're, 
making inroads. I don't know how, I don't know in the scheme of things, if we're catching up with that, but it's certainly, we're getting there, it seems. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to work to represent all of the people yeah. in House District 36. And what I will say is, you know, when a policy is good for the most marginalized among us, yeah. when a policy is good for people of color, especially black or indigenous people of color, when it's good for LGBTQ people, when it's good for disabled people, it's good for all of us. Yeah. And I think that that's the particular perspective that I bring, which is to say, I'm going to fight for everybody. Yeah. And I'm going to center voices that have long gone unheard. Yeah. And just finally, so how do you say, how, what's the, what's the game plan? What's the first, uh, first two or three month game plan here? What, what is your plan to start out? Absolutely. So my plan is to keep doing a lot of what I've already mm -hmm. been doing. You now we got to raise some money yep. because, you know, that's money and politics go hand in hand. And, and that's rough as somebody who, yeah. you know, grew up poor, is working class. Well, I don't know a lot of rich people. So right. got to raise some money. <laughs> right. But I'm going to keep doing the thing where I go to community yeah. meetings. I'm not making big speeches. You know, I'm sure. going to sit there. I'm going to listen. I'm going to hear about what people care about. I'm going to hear about how they want to solve the issues that impact them. And I'm going to take those messages and I'm going to weave them into this campaign. Yeah. Because this campaign isn't about me. It's about co-governance. It's about creating a District 36 that has a brighter future for everybody who lives in it. Well, if you see Jessica Benham at your community meeting, you should say hi and talk to her because I have enjoyed my conversation today. Um, it's really been uh, a, a great show, and I appreciate you coming. Jessica, good luck in the coming months, and I'm sure we're going to have you back on as this thing uh, keeps rolling through. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely, and this has been the Pittsburgh Current Podcast. New issue of the Pittsburgh Current comes out on Tuesday, October 1st. You can get our fall guide with more than uh, 100, 400. No, uh, that was somebody else who said there were only 100 things to do. We're saying there are more than 400 things to do this fall. So check us out uh, wherever fine free publications are handed out. This has been the Pittsburgh Current Podcast. Have a good week. A better alternative Giving Pittsburgh A better alternative This show is a member of the Sorgatron Media Podcast Network. Find out more at sorgatronmedia.com.